Hello and welcome to the Book of Leaves podcast. My name is Cara and I am the host. Welcome back to Book of Leaves, an Irish podcast where I interview people who are doing something good for the planet and you guys, the listeners, can take a leaf from their book to add to your own way of living. And we are going to be talking a little bit about ecosystems and forests and we are doing that with Owen Dalton who has recently released a book called An Irish Atlantic Rainforest, A Personal Journey Into the Magic of Rewilding. I have a copy of it here but I'm trying to finish my other book that I'm reading before I jump into this one. I can only read one non-fiction book at a time or my brain will turn to mush so I cannot wait to jump in so if you haven't checked his work out absolutely feel free to do that and just um, a little note for anyone in Dublin this week the week of the 5th of December there is a couple of events happening on for free in the Project Art Centre as part of like a protest week so they have like various different they've got an art and protest on Tuesday um, tomorrow there's a there's a climate snow housing on a dead planet event on Thursday and uh, there's letter writing and stuff that they're doing on week so the Project Art Centre has some events going on and there are loads of eco-friendly and vintage markets happening everywhere Um, so don't forget to support small local businesses when you can which you guys probably know but but share the markets with your friends and family you know and try to get them to be like oh look there's there's really unique gifts here so you should go check them out so that's just a little plug for any markets going you should go visit them I've been to a few and they're absolutely lovely and I've gotten a couple of gifts there so yeah absolutely love um, markets at Christmas time now I'll move on from Christmas conversation to talk about forestry with Owen I hope you guys enjoy and don't forget if you do like what you hear you can support this podcast on Patreon and I also have a once off uh, subscription once off donation model on buymeacoffee.com if you want to help donate towards the podcast fees and you can always rate it review it and share it with a friend oh and thanks so much for everyone who listened to my Spotify wrapped I was bloody delighted to actually see people listen to the podcast it's so funny even though I know that's what it's for but yes and welcome to Donal a new Patreon it is so so a new Patreon a new patron is the word I keep saying that but welcome Donal thank you so much for supporting the podcast in the way it is so appreciated and if anyone else would like to do that you'll find the link in the show Okay, here is Owen. Enjoy this chat. Brilliant. Owen Dalton, thank you so much for joining me here on the Book of Leaves podcast. Um, Some listeners might not know who you are or the work that you do. So can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Nice, nice to talk to you, Cara. My name is Owen Dalton. I'm uh, from Dublin, but 14 years ago, or close to 14 years ago, I bought a farm down on the Barra Peninsula uh, and moved down uh, with my family. And I've been rewilding most of the farm ever since and high nature value farming the rest. The, The land had been, to all intents and purposes, abandoned for about around a century before I came. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah, there were people living here. Most of the family that were here, the Crowleys, they mostly emigrated to the the United States. There was one or two kind of left behind at various stages, but, you know, generally they were elderly and weren't weren't able to do much with the land. So Mm. what, what what that did, what that allowed was for... 
the, the, the surviving uh, native trees and other flora and species were able to start spreading out. So if you went back in time, say, to around 1900 or so, what you would have found here would have been a regular farm, but you would have had in rougher patches of land, and there are lots of those. It's the Bearer Peninsula is... The, the topography is very, very rough, you know. So in a, in the, the rougher bits of land, for example, where you have rocky gorges or, or escarpments or bits of scree and that kind mm. of a thing, they wouldn't have been used for farming because they were worthless in that sense. So they would have been, they would have still had uh, pockets of wild native forest and as the land uh, stopped being used, those little pockets or refugia really uh, were able to to start seeding back out into the surrounding land and kind of joining up. So when I came, um, the most of the land was covered in a wild native forest that was extremely beautiful and extremely mm. rich and biodiverse. However. Um, it was also completely trashed ecologically. The main cause of that was a, a herd of feral goats. So feral goats are domestic goats that have been released. And what happens is with goats, goats breed, they reproduce extremely prolifically. As I understand it, only about uh, three or four goats were were released originally. But by a couple of years or a year or so before we moved here, that three or four had expanded out to about 100. Whoa. Yeah. And what, what goats do, they're kind of like living streamers, really. They eat everything. So the, the effect that they were having on, on the forest here was extremely damaging. They were preventing the natural regeneration of any of the, the wild native tree seedlings that were, mm. that otherwise would be constantly germinating and growing. And of course, if, if anything, if any population of any living thing can't reproduce for long enough, it dies out. Yeah, so of course. That, that's what was starting to happen with the forest here. It was starting to, um, you know, to die out. The, the, the goats were also stripping the bark off some of the older trees, which kills the tree. They had completely removed all, practically all ground flora in the forest. So normally a forest isn't just trees. You've got a really rich ascent. Yeah, there's different levels, isn't it? From the canopy layer down to the, down to the ground. So you've got different... Exactly. Layers exactly. that are really important. But the, the, the ground layer was completely just missing. And as if all of that wasn't enough. So from a about a head height down, there was just nothing there in the forest, really. And what that was doing was that it was it had created the perfect conditions for invasion by a whole host of non-native plant species. And I should just add that it wasn't only goats. There were, there were also, there are also sika deer in the area. Uh, and both they and goats are both in classic examples of what we would describe as invasive species. And their overgrazing had opened the way for a whole bunch of non-native invasive plant species to start moving in. The worst of which uh, was rhododendron, which is a massive problem mm. in practically all 
remaining fragments of native woodland around the west of Ireland in the more acidic soils. But there were there were plenty of other invasive plant species here as well, like um, Japanese knotweed and Chilean myrtle and a whole load of others. So what I did is I first of all applied for a grant under a scheme called the Native Woodland Scheme to fence out the goats and the deer. That took about a year and a half to go through, to work its way through the uh, the application process. And in the meantime, I started in my spare time, I started getting rid of the uh, rhododendron and the other invasive plant species. After 18 months or so, the, the deer fence went up. The I carried on, and I still do, the, the, the getting rid of the rhododendron and the other invasive plants mm. is something that will never really end because the seeds blow in, but year on year, the numbers of those plants decrease. Uh, Well, that's really hopeful. Yeah, so it's not a problem that's ever going to completely go away here. Yeah. It's always every every year it's there's less to be pulled out, you know. Yeah, uh, the more we we can decrease. But but come here, the so I I've heard this problem with goats before, um, and deers because they have no predators, they they're just allowed to roam and they don't they even spend as long a time or longer a time in a place because they know they have no predators. So instead of just eating little bits of fa- of forests and then moving on, they wait till everything's gone, have a big feast and then move on. So oh. I know the likes of Podrick Fogarty and Irish Wildlife Trust and some other people are kind of campaigning for wolves to be reintroduced to parts of Ireland. Would you think, would you kind of be in favour of that as well? Or do you think that would work? Well, what I'd say is you're absolutely right. If you have, I mean, as I said, like only three or four goats were were released into this area and because there was nothing to regulate their numbers they increased exponentially until there was about mm. 100 uh, now by the time we came there were only about 25 goats because people were shooting them and they reduced their numbers down to around 25 but even that that many was was enough because the, the the local habitats by that stage were extremely degraded. It didn't at that point need too many to keep it in that state, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, but that explosion in numbers is a demonstration of exactly what you're talking about. Natural ecosystems have herbivore. They, there's there's a plant community. There are things that eat the plants. And then there are things that eat the things that eat the plants. Uh, And if you take away that top layer, the whole ecosystem ceases to be in equilibrium. And the, 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 the herbivores will expand in numbers until they start to strip out all native vegetation. Another effect of the lack of what are called top predators is that you get something called mesopredator release, which is that uh, larger predators don't only regulate grazing and browsing animals, they also regulate smaller predators like foxes uh, and crows and this kind of thing. And if Mm. top predators are gone, then those species numbers explode as well. And that's what's happened with fox in Ireland, for example. And foxes are a a lovely native species, but if you have too many of them, uh, that can have devastating effects on other parts of the ecosystem, such as ground nesting birds. Uh, And in fact, we have uh, a catastrophic 
collapse of ground nesting birds, yeah. for example, the curlew uh, mm-hmm. and, and other species. Now, there will be various reasons for that, but uh, a superabundance of foxes, for example, can't be helping. Exactly. So to go back to your question, um, I think, yes, we absolutely need to be looking at reintroducing some of our lost predators in Ireland. And the obvious candidate people tend to talk about is the wolf. Now, personally, I think we need to be careful with this. Uh, the wolf is a, a native species. They're an amazing animal. Their ecological effects would be incredibly beneficial. But they're also a very difficult one for many people because they're pack animals and because we're brought up on a diet of children's stories that portray the wolf as this kind of demonic, evil creature. Mm. Uh, like I, Where I live, I live in a farming community down in West Cork where all my neighbors have sheep uh, and they would really struggle with the idea of wolves. And so my own opinion, I think in doing things like this, understanding the ecology is essential, but understanding people's perceptions and where people are at uh, psychologically is crucial too, because you, if, yeah. if you kind of like take things too fast or you jump the gun, uh, it can backfire on you, I think. Uh, oh, yeah if we need that we need that uh, communication clear because if there's any kind of resistance like you see it in like everything from like wind farms if communities themselves like don't benefit and they only see like how it will neg- negatively affect them it, it will get so much backlash and that will just yeah like throw a spanner in the works for the whole thing of course they're going to be very you know wary of the idea of things being imposed on them from outside by people mm maybe don't have any understanding of the realities of living in a rural community. And that is a very real thing in places like Bear, you know. And I think you have to be very mindful of things like that. I mean, while at the same time, mindful of the fact that we're in a in a catastrophic biodiversity emergency and that we're hemorrhaging nature and that we need to mm. act fast. We need to get things right. And that's that's why my own view on this is that the lynx is the, the species that we need to be looking at reintroducing. Lynx yeah. are a much easier one for people. For a start, they don't live in packs or prides. They, they're solitary animals. They're relatively small. They're about the size of a Labrador dog. They're very secretive. So you'd, you'd barely even know they were there. They're, they're really beautiful. They're, they're extremely lovely animals. They've, but for their size, they're well capable. I mean, for example, the big problem we have down here with invasive species is the Sika goat, is the Sika deer, uh, which is, was, re, was introduced from Far East Asia. They naturally occur around Japan and the kind of Manchuria, those kind of areas. Mm. And for example, if you go to Killarney National Park, the whole place is grazed absolutely bare. There's, there's no natural regeneration in most of the park whatsoever. Mm. And this is our, Killarney National Park is our most important uh, national park. It's one of only two biosphere re- uh, reserves, UNESCO biosphere reserves in the state. It's our largest and most important remaining fragment of native rainforest in the country. 
and it's completely dying. It's it's in a it's in a to, it's a total ecological wreck, uh, and that's largely down to sika deer, not solely, but largely. Mm. Now the lynx will control; they're they're well capable of taking adult sika deer. Uh, the chances are that they prey more on the young. Well capable of taking down sika stags, for example. But as you said, when it comes to the effects of of carnivores on ecosystems, it's not really so much about the numbers that they take. It's more about the effects that they have on behavior. So when you have top predators in, in an ecosystem, they create what ecologists call a landscape of fear. So herbivores, they know that they're at risk of being ambushed. So they're much more wary. They're much more skittish. They don't uh, hang about in areas where they, they know there's a risk of that happening. And that allows the, the native vegetation in those areas to flourish. So you get a kind of a patchwork effect of woodland and other native vegetation springing forth you know exactly yeah that sounds really really interesting it'd be really lovely to see possibly the links being brought to ireland at some point but outside of the farm that you that you have i guess i wouldn't really be called a farm more than a forest now hopefully but when people think of ireland like because we have such a little forestry we've something like less than two percent is native and uh, the rest is is um f- like farmed spruce and that. However, what did our landscape look like? Because we're kind of used to seeing the rocky, the rocky west, and thinking that's um our landscape. Are you are like? Would you say that it it was kind of mostly forest years ago? The first thing I'd say I I just um pick you up on the word forestry because when people talk about forestry, what they usually intend is commercial forestry as in monoculture mm. plantations so that's one thing uh, and i think we need to be very clear that it's something very different from actual wild native forest ecosystems yeah, uh, just, yeah. just monocultures are not a natural occurrence in nature you know it, people tend to impose monocultures because we try to identify what is going to be the most productive species and then we focus solely on that. But nature doesn't do monocultures generally. Mm-hmm. So what was Ireland like, for example, uh, at the end of the last ice age um, before farming uh, started? So, you know, the, the landscape in Ireland really started to shift radically uh, with the advent of farming here, which happened in the Neolithic, the first farmers. And that was roughly around 4,000 BC. I hope I'm right on that now, but it's early in the morning. I'm still <laughs> around 6,000 years ago, 4,000 BC. So if, if you look at what was here before then, I suppose you can take that as a kind of a one baseline anyway for what might be considered natural in mm. Ireland. It's generally estimated that around 80% of Ireland was forested at that time. By forested, I mean a great variety would have varied hugely in terms of species composition and openness, um, but around 80%. And the other 20% would have been various other 
natural habitats like wetlands and more open areas and bogs and so on. And as you say, we're, we're actually now down to around 1% of native land oh, no. cover. It's, it's actually far, far worse than that because the, the tiny fragments that make up that 1% are in the same state as my place was when I arrived, i.e. completely wrecked by overgrazing and invasion by non-native species. So we're in a really bad place. And one of the big problems we, we face here in Ireland in trying to change that, because there's nothing, almost nothing left here, people haven't experienced wild nature in this country. So it's very mm-hmm. difficult to go to people and say, you know, for example, the, the Dublin mountains or somewhere like that, or Connemara or the Kerry Mountains, that these are not natural places. People, For most people, that's nature, somewhere where they see mountains and rivers, and they, they think that, well, that's nature, but it's not. It's, it's a completely trashed landscape. It's been grazed to a biological desert, really. It's very difficult for people to relate to something that they've never known in their life. Yeah. And it's something that like it actually took me kind of leaving Ireland a little bit because I worked in Germany and driving across Germany, you just see acres and acres and acres of forest. You can see it from the motorway, like everywhere you go, like you're you're never driving for longer than like 40 minutes before you're, you're driving by a forest for five. And then you come home to Ireland and we've got our barren, our barren dry bogs and our and our dystopian landscapes that are so famous for so many films and whatnot. But that's actually not the way it's supposed to be so yeah it's really really fascinating but I guess what because this podcast is all about you know people people can take leaves out of out of your book to, to add to their own way of living and while not everyone may have access to land to to help rewild to its true kind of nature or how it should be what kind how can we then as just normal individuals help in making this change happen well I think the first thing perhaps the most important step that people can take is to become informed. That means just learning about wild nature and how ecology works and ecosystems and learning and being curious, you know, and, and wanting and going to your local park. I mean, if you live in Dublin, for example, head up to the Phoenix Park and work out what the the, the, the trees are there. Are they native? Are they not? What are those deer? Are they native? Are they not? the squirrels, the jays, whatever else, you know, Mm. start getting interested. Not everybody, but some people will have a garden, you know, start uh, planting native trees or flowers, or even better, let them self-seed in themselves. Don't be trying to manicure them and keep them trimmed and to within an inch of their life. Let let them go wild a bit because it'll be so much better for pollinators and wild birds and and also get get involved you know join organizations like the irish wildlife trust and the uh, native woodland trust get get involved get active meet up with like-minded people and and as well get political about it because you know there's no point in developing a relationship with nature and understanding how badly things are going for nature without doing something about it. It's, mm-hmm. it's essential that we all get involved in whatever ways we can. And I think that's a really crucial point as well that's worth mentioning is that everybody's different 
And everybody has different skills and strengths and things they can bring to, to such a movement. And we need everybody and we need everybody to, to try to find how they can play the best possible role. You know, not not everybody is going to up stakes and move to the Bear Peninsula and start <laughs> a farm. It's, it's, it's a big thing, I know. But, you know, there, there's so much that that people can do yeah absolutely and what are some of your favorite tree facts that you have learned or experienced along the way because I mean we could talk for hours about this but I don't know are there any like that come to your mind well there's so many really I I don't really see the trees in isolation anymore I see them as Mm. part of a much bigger system obviously they're the most visible part of that system they're they're kind of pillars of it but they really are just parts of a system in which you've got thousands of different species interacting with one another. And you've got so many diverse non-living elements of that ecosystem as well. The, yeah. the rocks, the rain, the sunlight, the, the minerals in, in the soil. The, there's, there's so many different things. And what I love most is getting glimpses into how all of this uh, works cohesively as a system. You know, I mean, like, I'll just give you an example. Off the top of my head, yesterday I was I was walking in, in the woods and uh, there were jays screeching all around me. And the jay is a, a brightly coloured uh, member of the crow family, but they're very, very, like the lynx, they're very secretive. So generally they're quite difficult to see but mm. they're not difficult to hear because they've got these really you know for such a beautiful bird they've got this really, <laughs> uh, this really raucous screech uh, but one of the one of the things i love about jays is that they're oak planters they plant, oh, cool. they plant oak trees so what jays do around this time of the year uh, when there's a lot of acorns on the woodland floor is that they'll go gathering those acorns and caching them here and there. If when you say cache, is that like what we know squirrels to do, like hide them somewhere? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Store them somewhere for the, for, the, for the winter. Now, if something happens to the jay, for example, one of the things I see fairly regularly in the woods here are sparrowhawks. Hmm. They will the way sparrowhawks hunt. They try to catch other birds in midair, so they fly like a kind of a jet plane through the forest, often very low to the ground. Uh, and, and the whole uh, object of the exercise is to surprise a blackbird or a jay and hit them in midair. Wow! Uh, and then the the the, the sparrowhawk will take the the blackbird or the jay or whatever else to a nice kind of like a, a prominent location, for example, a kind of a horizontal moss covered bough of a tree, which they use as a plucking post and they, they pluck the, the bird and feed there. Now, if that happens, for example, to a jay, the, the thousands of acorns that that jay has planted all around the place have a chance of germinating and growing into new oak trees. And so there's a kind of a, that's a good example of, of a kind of a symbiotic relationship. And that's kind of what I'm talking about when I say that 
for me, it's not really anymore about the, the trees. It's more about the ecosystem and how yeah. it fits together. 100% because like every single plant has a relationship with something else, another fauna or flora, no animal, no wild animal can survive without having a relationship with its local environment. So that's, that's yeah. why, you know, I mean, you hear people talking about native species, you know, it, it would be very reasonable to say, well, you know, what's the deal with native species? Like, you know, what's the problem with non-native species? Is there some kind of racism or xenophobia here against things that aren't from here and it's it's not about that at all it's about understanding that in a in a natural ecosystem things evolve together immensely long periods of time so you know if you go back far enough jays and oak trees wouldn't they wouldn't have had that relationship that that developed over a long long time whereas if you take a species that evolved to be part of an ecosystem in South America, for example, and you bring them here or you bring one of our species there, it's not going to have all those connections, if that makes sense. Yeah. If if a species is part, if it evolves along with everything else in an ecosystem, then it's it's kept in check. It's in balance with all of those other things. Uh, so some there will be things that eat it and eat, it eats other things and it all balances out. The Sika is a perfect example. The Sika isn't just invasive, the Sika deer, I mean. They're not just invasive so much because they're from Far East Asia, but more because the ecosystem is already completely dysfunctional because we have nothing that can predate Sika deer. Mm, yeah, there's also interesting ways. Um, I read somewhere recently how... I think it's minks. Anywhere there are minks, you won't find grey squirrels in Ireland because, and you'll find red squirrels because red squirrels and minks kind of evolve together. So the red squirrel knows to look out for the mink, but the grey squirrel is a ferret. Pine Martin. Ah, Pine Martin. Thank you. I'm always, thank you so much. See, this is why you're the expert. <laughs> so the anywhere that the Pine Martin is, grey squirrels don't just don't know that they're like a predator the same way the red squirrels do because they've like evolved with them so we could really use that kind of relationship to kind of absolutely that's a perfect example of what i'm talking about so gray squirrels were introduced from america that's where they're native um they were introduced in longford in 1911 as a wedding present would you believe oh my god no way a handful of them i don't know how many but i think you're only talking, wow. you know, less than a dozen, I think. That's all it takes, yeah. They, were, they escaped or they were released and they started to breed like crazy. When greys came into an area where there were the native red squirrels, for, for a few years they'd kind of coexist and then the reds would disappear. It's not completely understood the dynamics of how that happens, but I think it's largely down to a pox that the grey squirrels carry, but they're immune to. Um, but they spread to the reds, which which mm. aren't. But what we found in Ireland, there, there was a, a study done on all of this, that there was a, the signs of a turnaround in the situation because the pine marten, the pine marten nearly became extinct in Ireland. Um, and by the 1970s, there were very, very few left. They were, they were restricted to only a few parts of the country, particularly the Burren. But a few, there were a few other little pockets, but everywhere else they'd been exterminated 
or died out due to habitat loss. They're a they're a woodland species. So as our as our woodland went from around eighty percent down to one percent, they were one of the species that suffered hugely. Yeah. Um, so by the seventies, they were they were nearly all gone, but a law was introduced making them a protected animal. So they started to slowly recover. And as they did so, as they started to spread back out in the in range, uh, as they moved into areas where there were gray squirrels, the gray squirrel populations started to crash. And shortly afterwards, reds would start following back as the grays disappeared. Gray squirrels didn't co-evolve with pine marten. So Red squirrels are sometimes taken by pine marten too, but they're much more difficult to catch because they're smaller. They're also, they also spend far less time feeding on the ground. And it's a, it's a really good example of how to, to start bringing functional or ecological balance and function back, we, start, we need to start understanding how ecosystems work and also how we as a species uh, stop them working by removing predators or whatever else mm. we do. 100%. There's so much that we think we know. We can, we can, uh, sometimes we act like gods going, this will be better. And then <laughs> we're absolutely, we're not right at all. And speaking of one of those things, once, um, there's two more things that I want to ask you before we go. And one of them is something that I, for until this year, even though I've been like in the climate movement and loving all things biodiversity, like learning about it, for the last couple of years, I had this misconception about ivy, thinking that it was it was bad. And it was actually Twitter. We were having a little chat about the benefits of Twitter and it's a shame to see it go. It was actually someone posting a photograph of a, of someone hacking, cutting into ivy that was growing up a tree. Um, they obviously had the same misconception I did, being like, this is, you know, strangling the tree and it might be good for it. Um, so they cut into it and then there was like ruckus being like, no, 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 this is, you have to kind of leave it. So can you talk just a little bit about that kind of, like why ivy is a good thing to be left alone? So ivy is a native species and it's hugely beneficial to native wildlife. So it produces uh, flowers, which when fertilized turned into berries. So the flowers are great for uh, pollinators. Uh, and if you ever see a ma- if you ever see a bunch of ivy, for example, on a tree in in the autumn, you'll see that it's it's an absolute mass of buzzing insects of pollinators. Mm. They go mad for it, so it's really really important on that level. What's important about ivy is that it flowers and fruits at a, at times of the year when very little else is doing that. So it flowers in the autumn and fruits in the winter uh, when there's so much less generally on offer to to insects and birds and so it's really crucial in that sense but it also it provides a shelter to many things so the, the leaves are kind of waxy waterproof uh, glossy leaves in a mass of ivy there'd be so much things living there and, and taking advantage of that you know yeah but i'd even go further than that because i think for example, here, what I, what I have, the, the, the type of forest that's on the, that's, uh, that I have here on the, fa- on the farm is rainforest. So it's temperate rainforest, which I didn't know when I first came. But as I delved into woodland ecology, I started to understand that what I had here was temperate rainforest. 
Temperate rainforest is is wonderful because of the amazing profusion of mosses and ferns, particularly those that grow on trees, which is what is the, the indicator of rainforest is what are called epiphytes, but also rocks and, and, and everything is covered by this amazing diversity of living things. And to some degree, they depend on having moist, stable conditions. So if they were open to dry to the sun and drying winds, they wouldn't be there. And I think one of the functions that ivy performs in an ecosystem like that, this is it helps create because most of our trees lose their leaves in the winter, whereas mm. ivy does. So it helps to maintain those kind of conditions throughout the year. The, the kind of conditions that so many woodland inhabitants uh, need. But it has this reputation, ivy has this reputation as being, quote unquote, bad for trees. And so it needs to be, needs to be that we need to deal with. The idea that ivy kills trees is first off, it's wrong. Ivy does mm-hmm. not kill trees. So it can, it can have you know, some adverse effects on a tree. It, it, it doesn't take anything from the tree except support. So it uses the tree to grow up as support and it can rob some of the tree's light and probably take some nutrients from the ground uh, competing with the tree's roots. So in those senses, it probably makes life a little bit more difficult for the tree. But once you, underst- once you start to see things in ecosystem terms, those kind of ideas just completely go out the window because you, you, if a branch is blown from a tree or if a whole tree is blown over within a woodland ecosystem, those are hugely beneficial things to, to the mm. ecosystem, like falling, falling trees. First of all, most trees don't die when they fall. They, they continue growing. They just send up new growth from the side that's kind of, up towards the light. It, it creates what's called structural diversity within a forest, which is fantastic for in creating ecological niches for all the things that live in a forest. You know, from even from that point of view, ivy, it's not problematic. But I think we have this view of nature as something that needs to be managed. We, we tend to have this view that Without us to come along and to, to be there to kind of prune this back or encourage that or, or whatever else, that nature will be in a terrible state. But it's worth remembering that nature was doing absolutely fine for hundreds of millions of years before people came along. And we now have this mass <laughs> extinction in course. So it's actually the other way around. You know, the, mm-hmm. the challenge is to leave stuff alone. And ivy is a good example of that. Absolutely. And there's, I know I'm just very wary. We're going to have to let you go soon. So um, I hope people will take a leaf from your book and leave the ivy, leave the ivy alone. I'll link your sh- your uh, socials and that in the show notes that people can find you where you're still on Twitter. <laughs> but I guess one final question to ask before you go, I'm trying to get if uh, paint a picture of a f- positive future because we're very used to only painting dystopian ones. So I would love to ask you very quickly, in a future where everything has worked out, what is one of your favorite things about it? For an example, from my end, I really look forward to seeing no more lawns, no more front lawns and everyone's like, there's no manicured grass. There's just like ponds and trees 
and and just little ecosystems no matter how small everywhere so that's like one of mine but what is something that you really like about the future when it's all worked out I, I think yeah as you say just just much more wild nature and and I think as well just more time to enjoy it because the thing that's above all else that's driving the the, the collapse of nature across the planet is this idea of relentless growth that everything that the, the human economy needs to continue growing relentlessly and it's just such it's just so crazy and it's such a disaster the idea that on a on on a planet that's not growing we can keep expanding our impact and our footprint and gdp that's what gdp is gross domestic product is a measure of the impact that we have on what's remaining of you know the living planet and we need to change that we need to we need to turn find another way of of living that measures well-being in other more meaningful terms that doesn't say well you know human existence is all about turning beauty into products to sell and make money from once we if if we can get to that place then i think as well as having a lot more wild nature we'd have time to enjoy all that and you know so many other beautiful things in life lovely like just, just more time and with that comes like peace and a good night a good relationships with nature so absolutely own thank you so much for your time this morning i really really appreciate it and hopefully some listeners now will go go out and get a copy of your book <laughs> yeah my book is called i'm just going to give you a quick plug do yeah called an, an Irish Atlantic Rainforest, A Personal Journey into the Magic of Rewilding. And you can get it in any good bookshop in Ireland. Love it. Thank you so, so much, Alex. Now, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to stay up to date with Owen's work, he shares a lot of really, really interesting articles and facts. And even this morning was actually sharing an article about introducing links back into Ireland, which I found really fascinating. But you can find him on the handle Irish Rainforest on Instagram and Twitter. So check him out there if you fancy. And don't forget that you can also buy his book from any good bookshops. Um, so yeah, I really hope you enjoyed this chat. And I can't wait to delve into his mind through his book and learn even more. And just don't forget to take a leaf out of his book and empower yourself with knowledge. Have these communications with people. And yeah, we can just, we can guide nature as opposed to manipulate it back into being the glorious ecosystem it once was. So thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, share this episode and support it on Patreon if you can. And I will chat to you in two weeks time. Let me know if there's any specific topics you'd like to hear before we round out the season okay thank you so much guys bye